Good. Now take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read God's Word before we take a closer look at the last uh, three verses of this section. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 16. You can follow along in a copy of their scriptures. If you don't have one, you can find it on uh, page... um, 1158 in your pew Bibles, 1158. Again, I'll say if you don't have a Bible at all, please feel free to take one from the pews, uh, take it home with you. We would be pleased to have you leave with a copy of God's Word. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Now, um, what does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? Uh, He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is Christ. From Him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. In a couple of months we're going to come to Ephesians chapter 5, which is one of the New Testament's most careful teaching about marriage. And I'm thinking, when we come to Ephesians 5 in a couple months, of spending a few extra weeks in that passage, maybe doing a a little mini-series on marriage in this long walkthrough of the book of Ephesians that we are on. Uh, In preparation for that time to come, I've read a couple books recently about marriage, and one of them is a new book by Mark Driscoll and his wife Grace. It's called Real Marriage. It's a fine book. It's probably not the best marriage book I have ever read, not one I'd recommend to everybody. If, if you know Mark Driscoll, it contains, this book, many of his strengths and many of his weaknesses. Um, something that I appreciate, though, about their book that they point out is they ask you to think about this question. What is the most important day of your marriage? It's the most important day of your marriage. Our society is geared toward thinking that the first day of your marriage is of crucial importance. And I suppose it is. But the most important day of your marriage is not the first day, but the last 
day. How your marriage ends is of much greater significance than how your marriage begins. It can end in a variety of ways. Some marriages, uh, uh, the last day of them comes prematurely in a, in a divorce court when the judge declares that the contract is over. If you're here this morning and you've ever thought about the last day of your marriage, uh, I imagine your dream is that it's a long time in the future. Huh. It might happen in, in a, a hospice center or a hospital or, or a, a home with your hand in your spouse's and you wish love and peace to one another as you say goodbye. The decisions that you make today will shape how you experience that last day. Uh, we're not conditioned in our culture to think that much about the last day. We, we spend thousands of dollars on the first day of your marriage. You spend a, a, lots of money on the dress and the photographer and the reception. Uh, but we don't think that much about the investments that we make in the last day. And one of the reasons is that we face the constant temptation to bury our thoughts about that last day and what it's going to be like under all the details of life. You and your spouse have to figure out some sort of housing for yourself. And uh, in time, maybe children. And you've got to think about your job and your schedule and your taxes and your in-laws. Um, and what really matters can be obscured by the details. What happens in a marriage can happen in a church, too. We've been thinking a lot these days about the church. And we've been talking about the details of a church. Spiritual gifts, offices, we've been talking about membership, doctrinal statements, details about how a church is supposed to work. But what we can't forget in the midst of all of those details is that the church, first and foremost, is supposed to be a community of love. Being mature, being complete in Christ is uh, true, Paul uses the term growing up in Christ, but at the pinnacle of that maturity in Christ is love. This is what this whole passage has been aiming at. It ends that way. Verse 16. Did you see that? The whole church will grow and build itself up in love. In love. Actually, chapter 4 begins that way too. It ends with love. It begins with love. Verse 2, it says, we're to bear with one another in love. And verse 15 says, we're to speak the truth to one another in love. Paul's aim in explaining all the things that he has to us about how God has worked to bring Jews and Gentiles into the church together and how God has given gifted people to the church to pastor and teach and shepherd and, and guide. Uh, the, the whole aim of Paul in, in speaking to us about spiritual gifts in general and all those details is so that we would become together a community of love. And for the final moments that we have in this uh, long section of Scripture, I want to review with you two more lessons about measuring up to God's plan for us as a church. Uh, the Apostle wrote these lines so that these values would infiltrate every single part of the church in Ephesus, and they're here for us as well. I, I want to cast these lessons that I think are in these last three verses of Ephesians uh, for this one section by, uh, uh, in this way, I want to cast them by answering and asking and answering this question, what produces the love that is central to our identity as a church? If we're supposed to be a community of love, if that's 
the aim of this passage, if it's what Paul is after, and it's what to characterize us as a congregation, what produces, what's the Apostle's prescription for producing this sort of love that is supposed to be central in the life of the Lord's church? Uh, I think that the text points us in two different directions, and that's what we're going to talk about uh, today. Here's the first direction. Uh, number one, focusing on the truth. Focusing on the truth. Our goal as a congregation, we want to be described as gospel people. That, that is our goal. That is, we want to be men and women whose lives are centered together on the gospel message. The message that Paul described when he said in 1 Corinthians 15, this is of first importance. Christ died, he says, for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That message. Now, if I asked you this morning, which is more important to us as a church, more important to the health of our congregation, what would you say? Would you say it's either the gospel message or would you say it's love? Is it Paul's message of the cross or is it our union with one another as, as followers of Christ? Now, I confess to you that when I asked myself that question earlier this week, I was inclined to say, well, it's the gospel, it's the gospel. But as I read this passage and think about this, I think that if the Apostle Paul were here this morning and you said to him, Paul, which is more important, the gospel or our love? Paul would say, I don't understand the question. You see, because the message that Paul described as of first importance is essential for us. It is the only message that will actually produce love. And if your focus on the gospel does not produce love, it is evident of the fact that you don't understand the gospel as much as you thought you did. The two go hand in hand. Uh, now, that combination of the true message and love is stated actually very positively in verse 15 where Paul says we're to speak the truth in love. There's a positive emphasis of this. And we often use that phrase to talk about our personal relationships. I want to speak the truth to you in love. Uh, Bob, I need to tell you that you're an angry person. Or, you know, uh, Sherry, I need to tell you you really need to take a shower or something. You know, uh, but, but I want to do it in love. I'm going to speak the truth in love. That, that's not what this is talking about. The, the, the context is that, that Paul is talking about our proclamation of the gospel and we do it in love. There's that positive. But actually he begins speaking about this concept of the truth, focusing on the truth in, in negative terms. And that's in verse 14. Remember Paul's talking about our maturity, our maturity in Christ, our maturity in love. And if we don't focus on the truth, he says, verse 14, we will be like infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by cunning, by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Paul was constantly concerned about the churches he founded and, and he was concerned about the possibility of them being hijacked away from the truth. This is a theme that pervades all of the New Testament. In Galatians 1, Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, I am astonished, he said, that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Paul was concerned about the truth in the church. John was concerned. Listen to what John says in 2 John 7. 
Many deceivers who did not do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your home or welcome him. Paul and John are concerned about the churches that they founded, that they pastored, and their commitment to the truth. Almost the entire books of Second Peter and Jude are dedicated to this topic. I'm going to read one more verse from the book of Jude. He says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write to you and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. So the early church, the early apostles are concerned about this for their congregations, about the truth. And they constantly warned their readers that other gospels, false gospels, would come into the church. And, and the, the, this relatively young body of believers in Ephesus, they needed to know about this. They needed to be aware of this. And to communicate the urgency of this, Paul uses three images in verse 14. He talks about babies, boats, and bedding. Um, he said, verse 14, we should no longer be infants. We shouldn't be babies. Now, what qualities do you associate with babies? Babies are cute, they're innocent looking, they're sweet. But what babies are not is discerning. Babies are not discerning. One of the first steps you have to take if you welcome a baby into your home is to prepare your home for a new baby. We still have all over our house these little plastic covers that you uh, that are over our electric sockets because babies don't know that electric sockets are not places where they're supposed to store their metal toys. And we have gates. We, uh, they're not there anymore. But we had gates on our stairs because babies don't know that stairs are not places where you should practice your walking or your rolling over. This week, uh, on two separate occasions, uh, Thursday and Friday, we were uh, separately. Uh, Kathy and I sang with our girls before we put them to bed. Singing is not usually part of our nighttime routine, but we did that. Uh, Kathy on Thursday and me on Friday. And when we were done singing... On Friday, I, with the girls, uh, uh, Jenna looked at me and she said, that was beautiful. We should sign up for the praise and pie service. <laughs> it was different when Kathy sang with them on Thursday. On Thursday, Claire looked at Kathy and said, that was beautiful. Mommy, you sound just like Betty when she sings. <laughs> now, the singing of parents is supposed to be sweet in their children's ears. But I will be frank about the quality of my singing. It's not that sweet. Children don't know. They don't have discernment. Uh, and, and lacking that discernment, they are threatened just like boats on a, on a raging sea. That, that's what he's got to be talking about. He moves from babies to boats in, in verse 14. Um, you'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Uh, I don't have much experience sailing on the ocean. I've been whale watching on a boat once or twice, but that's about it. Some of you, though, have been on big boats in the middle of the ocean. 
Paul knew what it was like to be on a boat in a raging storm. In fact, 2 Corinthians 12 talks about the number of times that Paul had been shipwrecked. And in Acts chapter 27, it talks of, uh, Paul writes, uh, actually Luke writes about Paul's experience before he wrote this letter. He was on a ship, he was sailing for Rome, he was in the Adriatic Sea, and he was caught in a storm for two weeks. Days went by before they saw the sun and the stars. It was a terrible, terrible storm. In fact, the storm tore apart the ship that Paul was on. Paul is saying, in this world, there is gospel, there are gospel alternatives, false gospels, false teachers, and, and if you don't have a good nose, if you don't have a discernment, you are risking being tossed around by that teaching. The, the world is a swirling storm of ideas and philosophies, and immature believers are at risk, they're at danger. That they need to grow. And they're not at risk just by people who are innocently in error. There are people who teach another gospel in our world, not out of deviousness, but just because they're in error. They don't know any better. But Paul here is concerned about people who are coming to teach with nefarious motives. And that's why he turns to the world of gambling or uh, betting. Uh, The word translated cunning here in verse 14 is a word that comes from dice throwing. Paul says um, these teachers, there are teachers out there who are playing with loaded dice. And you have got to be discerning. You have got to look out for them. You have got to focus on the truth and your growth in it so that you don't fall for their schemes. Now, I'm not exactly sure what Paul has in mind. If he has a specific false teaching in mind here, or if he's, he's concerned about specific teachers in Ephesus, you know, Paul mentions two things about them. He says they have a false message, and their motives are wrong too. A false message and, and scheming motives. A motive to deceive, to outwit you. Actually, in 2 Corinthians, uh, actually, this word craftiness here in verse 14 Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians 11 to describe Satan's cunningness, craftiness in how he deceived Eve. It is impossible for us to evaluate somebody's motives. Paul's talking about their motives, but it is impossible for us to to do that, to evaluate somebody's motives. But we must be diligent in evaluating their message. Part of focusing on the truth is recognizing that there are people in the world who are trying to sell us deceitfully a false message that we cannot receive and we cannot accept and we cannot approve of. There are people whose false messages are promoted on television shows and in bookstores. Uh, Men like Eckhart Tolle, whom Oprah Winfrey herself, a propagator of false teachings and ideas, uh, promoted. There are false teachers whose books are sold in Christian bookstores. Teachers like William Young, who wrote The Shack, or Joel Osteen, and Joyce Meyer, or T.D. Jakes. Some of the best-selling books right now available in print, uh, very promoted, are books that talk about supposed visits to heaven and hell. Don Piper wrote a book called 90 Minutes in Heaven. Or uh, there's uh, last time I was in a... Uh, the Berean bookstore, they were all over these, the place, posters and pictures of, of that book called Heaven is for Real by Todd Burpo. And it's got a really cute little kid on the cover and no truth in between. 
Uh, there are more examples of teachers, whether they name Christ's name or not, they propagate teaching that de-emphasizes or deviates from the gospel, and they have always been around. And Paul wants us to be aware of them because we have to be uh, centered on the real gospel that speaks to us of the real Christ that produces real maturity. This is the only possible way in which love will grow in our congregation. Now, if I were sitting where you are, I would want to know why. Why is it that I believe that only the gospel produces real love? It's a great question. That's one I'm glad that you asked me this morning. So I'm going to answer that that question. I believe that only the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to call you outside of yourself so that you can truly love other people. Only the gospel has that power to call you out of yourself that way. Um, It's only grace, it's only real grace received and depended on that has the power to transform you so that you can freely love someone else. Let me explain what I mean. Christianity is not unique among faiths in the world in diagnosing a problem with humanity. Uh, We're not unique, even in the commitment that we have to our Bible, to speak of the problem of humanity in terms of, of sin. We believe that we are alienated from our Creator because of our rebellion against Him. In the world that God made, our lives are meant to center around uh, God. It, that's how, supposed, how life is supposed to work. But instead, instead of centering our lives around His will, His ways, His word, we have chosen to go our own path, Paul says, like sheep gone astray. And because God is good and because God is sovereign, He is going to fix the world that we have broken by our rebellion against Him. And because God is... Uh, committed to fixing this broken world, we who broke it stand underneath His condemnation. We stand in rebellion against Him. Now, some religions speak about how we have displeased our Creator, but we speak about this situation as an irreparable problem, at least on our parts. It's something that we can't fix. There's nothing that we can do about our own condition before God. We're debtors to God, the Bible says. Now, I am a debtor to my bank. I owe them money for the car that's sitting in my driveway. And every month, I send them a check, and someday, I'm going to be free of this debt that I owe them. And I'm going to earn the money so that I can send them money, send it to them, and and pay for my debts. It is impossible for us, though, to pay the penalty that we owe because of our sin. We are lost. We're condemned. We're without hope, without God, utterly dependent on the free grace of God. We believe that Jesus Christ has come and He has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He lived a perfect life on this planet, perfectly fulfilling God's plan. And then He died on the cross to pay the penalty that we Oh, and he rose from the dead. And the Bible says that it is a free gift of God, that that forgiveness, that God will forgive and give life to anyone who believes, who turns to Him and trusts for forgiveness. It's all of grace. All of grace. Now, most religions that are not based on grace say that the human condition is broken. They might agree about that, that you have a problem. But instead of turning to Christ to receive the free gift... 
They argue, many other faiths argue, that the solution to the problem is trying harder, doing better, or making up for what you have done for your uh, uh, bad deeds. They say, the situation is not irreparable, you just need to write the check to the right bank so that you can uh, pay your way out of the debt. Uh, and and the, the, the good deeds that they advocate might be fine things to do. Uh, caring for other people, giving to the poor, caring for the lonely, visiting the widows. But listen, here's the crucial difference. Here's, here's why only the gospel can produce real love. If you are doing those charitable acts to other people in the hope of earning a place in God's favor, are you really loving them? Are you really loving the poor, the lonely, the widows, or are you using them as tools to get onto God's good side so that you can earn spiritual merit? And if you're using them for your spiritual profit, you're not really loving them. They are not people in need. They're just people that you can use to climb higher on the spirituality ladder. Without the Gospel, you will always need other people for significance or for validation or for spiritual merit of some kind. But the Gospel of grace frees you from earning your way. And it sets the course of your life on radical generosity. Grace overflows out of your life because you've received grace from Christ. You have everything that you need, so you're free to give it away, to to give what you have received to others. That's why we have to be gospel people. That's why we have to focus on the truth, why we have to vigilantly stand for the gospel and against deviations or distractions from it because nothing else has the power to call you out of yourself like the gospel. Now, verse 15 takes that negative focus of verse 14 and turns it around and says it positively. We must speak the truth in love. Remember, if the gospel doesn't make you a loving person, you don't really understand the gospel. This passage fits well with that verse that we sing in the the song, I Love the Church. I love the church, we sing the pillar of God's word. We will exalt the truth till all have heard. We will oppose the lies of erring men. Why? That God in in grace may turn them from their sin. We're going to speak the truth in love. Or as Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, those who oppose him, that is a servant of Christ, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. This emphasis of gently instructing uh, with grace is why the representatives of the Westboro Baptist Church who picket at soldiers' funerals are such a disgrace to the gospel. This balance in verse 15 of speaking the truth in love is is a hard balance to maintain because sometimes you can uh, uh, never get to the truth in the name of love. Or sometimes you can say the truth and not in a very loving way. It's a difficult uh, balance to, to, to maintain. And yet not to deliver the truth is unloving itself. Think about that for a moment. Uh, Do you want your mechanic to tell you the truth? What if he's got bad news? It's going to cost you a lot of money. Or your doctor. Do you want your doctor to tell the truth? 
to you? What if he's got bad news for you about your cholesterol, your blood pressure, or your kidneys, or your joints? Do you, do you want him to, would it be kind of your mechanic to say to you, no problem, your car's okay, just go ahead. Hope you can make it at least a mile. Is that loving or kind? No. It's not kind for your doctor to ignore the problems that you have either. Focus on the truth. We're not really loving people if we are silent about it. That, that's the first thing that produces love that should mark us, our lives as a church. Focusing on the truth. Now here's number two from verse 16. We're going to spend most of our time in verse, the rest of our time in verse 16. Using your gifts. Using your gifts. Focusing on the truth, verses 14 and 15, and using your gifts, verse 16. Look at the text with me here again. I want to, I want to look at it. This is a loaded verse. There's difficulty, I think, in moving somewhat from the Greek to the English, but let's uh, plow through. From Him, that is Christ, verse 16 says, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is not a simple passage, but one of the themes of this verse is that the work is the work of Christ in the church. That's a theme in this verse. Christ works in the church. From Him, we grow and are built up. He's the source of our growth. He's the one who does the work of joining us together and holding us together. That word in, in verse 21, joined together, is, is actually used in chapter 2, verse 21. Remember, we talked about it under those contexts. In, in that verse, um, I, I described the work of a stonemason in Paul's day. That this is the day when they did not use mortar to, to join their stones so a master craftsman would take stones and he would shape and cut and carve them so that they fit perfectly in with one another like a jigsaw puzzle. And that's how they built buildings. And Christ, Paul says, is that master craftsman who is, has joined us together with one another in this building. That's one theme of this verse, Christ's work. Another theme of this verse, though, is that he tells us about the means that he uses. He tells us about the means that he uses. And he refers here to you and to me. We are held together by every supporting ligament. That, that's us. You. You're one of the ligaments that Christ is using to put our church together and to help it grow. The growth and the strength come from Christ but he's using us all to build the building. Now, he's, he's mixing his metaphors, and he's talking about a living building. Well, we'll forgive him. He's the Apostle Paul, right? But this living building that grows and is built as each part does its work. Now, there's a word that's missing in my translation of verse 16. Actually, I think it's missing in all of the English translation, uh, translations. It's the word measure. Uh, the NIV tries to capture this word with the emphasis on each, as each part does its work. Uh, the, the New American Standard or the ESV, if you have that, try to catch the word of measure in, in the sense of properly. Each part does its work properly or according to measure. I mention this word measure because I think it's an important verse in this passage. You have in your hands an excellent uh, copy of God's word, but, but there's a, a word missing that I'd like to see a little bit more here. The word measure is used in verse 7, uh, verse 7 of chapter 4. Um, it's not in my translation again, but it says, but to each one of us, grace has been given according to Christ's measure. 
be a better translation. Then in verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And in verse 16, we each have a part in contributing to the church according to uh, its own, each part contributes according to its own measure. Now, let me, let me put this in measurement terms since this is the way Paul is speaking. Um, our standard for our growth is the height of Christ. And I recognize that it is an infinite standard. Right? He is infinitely beautiful, infinitely gracious, infinitely righteous. And I understand that, but indulge me for a minute. Let's say that Christ is ten feet tall. His, the measure of the fullness of His excellence is uh, ten feet. And He has given out measurements of gifts. Uh, to some people, He has given ten inches of grace gifts. To some people, He's given seventeen inches of grace gifts. Some five inches. But if we're going to get to the full height of Christ's ten feet... We need every single inch that we have. Every single bit of grace gift that God has given contributed together so that we can together reach the full height of the measure of the fullness of Christ. This uh, measurement imagery reminds me a little bit of a pastor who stood in front of his congregation uh, one day and he said, Brothers and sisters, you know we desperately need to add on to to the building. We need a bigger building for our use. And the congregation said, Amen, Amen, that's true. And the pastor said, the good news is that God has already provided every single penny we need for the building. The congregation said, amen, amen. Then the pastor said, the bad news is that all that money is in your pockets. Uh, We have everything that we need to reach the full measure of the height of Christ. And the gospel is in your, the grace is in your pockets. The danger Paul is warning us here is that some of us might do too much work and some of us might not do enough work, just like a body. Uh, think with me about this. Your, your thyroid, you have a thyroid gland right about here. It's butterfly shaped, you're like a bow tie. It's a really important part of your body. It's a little gland. It, it's, a, it's a crucial part of your endocrine system. Your thyroid releases hormones that are necessary for your metabolism. 27 million Americans have a problem with their thyroid. Probably some of you here take thyroid medication. Uh, You might have a problem with your thyroid. Some people suffer from hypothyroidism, which means your thyroid is underactive. Some people have hyperthyroidism. Your thyroid is doing too much. Either way, this one little gland it has to be in balance. And if it's not working properly, it wreaks havoc in your body. The same is true in the body of Christ. If I am doing too much, more than I should, the whole church suffers. And if you're doing too much, the church suffers. If you're not doing enough, the body suffers. This is the danger for all of us. It's the danger related to love. It's the danger related to our maturity. I don't know how you have been gifted, but without your gifts, we all suffer and we're not going to reach the fullness of the height of Christ. Do you like to eat bananas? I like to eat bananas. I am told that there are dozens and dozens of of varieties of bananas. I don't think I've ever seen anything but the regular yellow ones that you can buy. I say regular, right? The regular yellow ones that you can buy in the grocery store. 
There are dozens and dozens of varieties of bananas, but most of the bananas in the world that are cultivated, uh, there are only three types that people commonly eat. The rest of them, maybe a hobbyist, maybe a, a scientist somewhere cultivates them. But a large proportion of the banana plantations in the world are given over to these three types of bananas. And if there's a blight that wipes out these three main types of bananas, the world will be bananaless. We'll want to split. Christ's intention... (laughs) I'll give you a minute to recover. Okay. Uh, Christ's intention for the church is that it is to be filled with the sweet taste and the sweet aroma uh, that reflects the full flavor of His good design. That's His intention. It's why in the church He calls together people from different ethnicities and people with different preferences and people from different generations and why He gives different gifts to us all. His love, Christ's love, is abundant with textures and flavors and aromas. And all of us contribute to it as we delight in the Gospel and as we use the gifts that He has given us. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we're grateful to you this morning uh, for your uh, kindness in speaking to us about uh, love in the church. Father, we want to do things right. We want to do things properly as a church. We want to honor you with how we use our gifts and, and how our elders function and how we use our constitution and doctrinal statement, how we think about membership. Uh, most importantly, though, Father, we want to be a community of love. Men and women so transformed by the gospel that it just overflows in how we live and and what we do. We ask you again this morning, as we have frequently during this time, that you would cultivate in us the patience and the humility and the gentleness and the forbearance uh, that we need to to love one another. Uh, Father, I pray that you would... um, Uh, impress upon us and that you would raise up the gifted men and women in our church who equip others to serve and use their gifts so that we might reach that full measure. Inch by inch grow us, we pray. We want to be, uh, we we want to spread that full aroma and that sweet taste of the love of Christ. Do that for us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.